This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thank you for tuning in today. This is the Tuesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions or pretty much anything that's on your heart or mind. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app and just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. The rest will be hands-free and you will be safe. Um, We had a call yesterday from Mick who asked about the movie The Chosen, or I guess it's a television series, The Chosen one to know. I was able, Mick, to look at the first uh, episode today. Uh, I thought it was... Excellent, uh, interesting. I thought it was exceptionally well done. Uh, I, I noticed that the producer is the son of Jerry Jenkins, who uh, wrote the Left Behind series along with Tim LaHaye. Um, Baptist in their theology and background is solid. So uh, it's a great representation. The quality of the acting, the quality of the movie is excellent. And uh, I would recommend it. Now, here's the problem I ran into. Now, you got to keep in mind, I'm technically challenged. And so I got through the first one, and it said, go to episode two. So I was going to see what it was about. And then there's a whole bunch of hoops you had to jump in, jump through to, to, to try to find it. And, and it was a plea for money. They wanted money before they would unlock the other episodes. So I'm never a fan of that, especially with Christians. You know, I, I realize that things like this cost money. Radio programs cost money. I understand all of that. But, you know, I just really do believe that if more of us would trust the Lord, if he said to do this movie, uh, then they ought to make it available and, and just trust that the Lord is going to provide for their needs. And I just don't find that. So I was a little put off, Mick, by the fact that they wanted more money. They had everything from $100,000 commitments to uh, $14 commitments. And you get an, another episode or something. So I, I I don't do those things. But what I saw, I liked very, very much. Uh, I especially, you can go watch the pilot episode for free, and I would recommend that everybody does that. Uh, the pilot episode uh, portrayed Nicodemus the way I've been teaching 
about Nicodemus for, for many, 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 many years. And I don't often see that. So I just thought it was great. I just wish that I could watch the rest of the episodes. But uh, I didn't see any red flags at all. Um, and and I, I just think it's uh, worth our time. If it's worth your money or not, that's up to you. So Mick, uh, sorry I didn't have more yesterday, but honestly, I'd never heard of it until um, you called about it yesterday, and I'm glad you did. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Randy. He said, uh, who does he refer to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8? Randy, let me read it, and then we'll talk about it. It says, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. Will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Now, Randy, the he who, and and that's the New King James translation, um, uh, says... uh, until he is taken out of the way, is referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, The idea here is that while the secret power of of wickedness, of lawlessness, is already at work in the world that we live in, there is a restraining factor. Now that may surprise you when you look around at this world and see all of the crazy stuff, the evil stuff that's going on, but that is evil being restrained. And this is a promise that at one moment... The restrainer, the Holy Spirit, not just the Holy Spirit in general. Remember, God is uh, omnipresent, so the Holy Spirit will always be here. But in his capacity is restraining evil, being light in the darkness. So this is a reference to the taking away of the church in the rapture. And when we leave here, Randy, then this whole world, it's going to be, as Jesus said, like it was in the days of Noah, when the whole world, every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. Because adjectives are important. And that's the way it's going to be. Imagine how dark things would be right now if there was no representation of Christ. If there were no Christians pointing to biblical morality, if there were no Christians who were living examples of what Christ-likeness is all about. And so what this says is the church will be taken away in the rapture, and then the lawless one, or the Antichrist, the man we call the Antichrist, he will be revealed to the word, to the world. And once he's revealed uh, for uh, three and a half years of the seven years of the Great Tribulation, he's going to be noted as a man of peace. He is going to be the most popular leader the world has ever seen. Um, at three and a half years, he's going to be fed up with it. He's going to desecrate the temple, the Holy of Holies. He's going to demand to be worshipped as God. And then it's going to be set for the last three and a half years where the really, really horrible judgments, the vile judgments, the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, are let loose on this world. And at the end of it, we know from Revelation chapter 19, he's going to come with his enemies gathered in the Valley of Megiddo, the Battle of Armageddon. And when that happens, Jesus will return, we'll be with him, and he will destroy his enemies with the word. 
He'll have on his robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Nobody will make any have any question about who he is. And he's going to destroy those who oppose him. So, Randy, that's who it refers to, the restraining power of the Holy Spirit working in the church, in the hearts of believers, in days coming when we're going to be gone. And then evil, darkness, is going to have its way in the rest of this world. Thank you for that question. I am, right now, my own personal reading is in Second uh, Thessalonians, having read First Thessalonians, um, and now going into Second Thessalonians. Uh, this is just sort of kind of where I am. So you hit my wheelhouse there, Randy. Thank you very, very much. April said, how can I explain to someone that we have free will if God already knows what we're going to do? April, this is a question that people have been wrestling with for generations, for millennia. Uh, and, and the answer is real simple. You don't have to explain to anyone at all. People can make a choice about what they're going to do. God knows what we're going to do, but God doesn't cause us to do what we do. It's one of the things we need to really understand about God's sovereignty. It's not causative. It isn't that God determines what's going to happen and then makes those things happen. God knows what's going to happen. He knows the choices we're going to make. And we're going to make the choices by exercising our free will. It's one of the reasons, April, that every morning as I'm starting to go out with the Lord, it's, it's Lord, today of my own free will I choose to serve Jesus. I could make that free will choice not to serve him. I could make the free will choice to do what I want to do instead of what he wants to do. But God didn't cause me to make that choice. He just knows what choice we're going to make. Now, April, I'm a preacher, so forgive me if this is overstepping. But one of the things I always deal with at Calvary Chapel here, when I'm talking about these issues where we go through our, our, our teaching in the Bible, as I challenge the people here at Calvary Chapel, remember, I love them, and I, I want them to be pleasing to God. So I ask them, what choice does God know you're going to make? Are you going to come to God? Are you going to repent? Or are you going to live for you, do whatever feels good, do whatever pleases you? So what's your free will decision going to be? And when you make that choice, God knows the choice you're going to make. Again, he didn't cause it, but he knows everything. So what does he know about you? What does he know about what you're doing? During this time when we've all been sort of forced into our homes. What does God know about the decisions you've made? How are you going to spend your time? You see, because he knows everything. He knows what choice we're going to make. And he doesn't cause the choice, April, but he knows the choice you're going to make. Now, the good thing is when we make really bad choices, all we have to do is say, Lord, that was a horrible choice. I'm sorry. I don't want to make that same choice again. And he will... Give you another chance. It's a good thing. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from William. He says, Pastor Ron, will you please explain Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Can William, let me read it and then we'll talk about it. It's Jesus speaking. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Now, context is really important here, William. So um, uh, this is one of those passages of Scripture that shakes people up. Does this mean I can lose my salvation? Uh, the people that Jesus was speaking to were religious leaders of Israel, but they had nothing approaching salvation at all. They weren't serving God, though they claimed to be. They were serving themselves. They didn't care at all about what pleased the Lord. And so Jesus is now with these people. Remember, this is about the time they start plotting his murder, trying to figure out a way to get rid of him. And so he says, on the day of judgment, a lot of people are going to come to me and call me Lord. But they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he anticipates their objection. Well, well, I'm a religious person. I keep the law. I do this or I do that. So if we're not going to be in heaven, who is? And he says, the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And immediately Jesus is talking about behavior. You know, we can say anything with our mouth. Now, for those of us who are Christians in the year 2020 here in San Antonio, Texas area, we call him Lord all the time. But honestly, the truth is, a lot of us, we don't do what he tells us to do. And the implication so, so clear. If Jesus is Lord, it means he's in charge. He's the boss. And if he's the boss, he tells you something to do, then we've got to do what he says. And Jesus readily acknowledges that there's a whole bunch of people who call him Lord, but have no intention of treating him like he's actually the Lord of their lives. Then he goes in the next verse, in verse 22, he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And the idea there is, but, but yeah, I'm a real believer because I did these things. I said, thus saith the Lord. Paula was reading to me today out of Jeremiah chapter 29, and uh, repeatedly the prophet, speaking for God, said, um, there's people coming to you saying, the Lord said this, I didn't send them. They don't have my word, but they keep declaring that they do. And so now what he's saying to this Jewish audience, it works very nicely for us as well. William, he's saying, you can say, thus saith the Lord, all you want. You can go, and there were Jewish exorcists. They made a lot of money exercising demons, or at least attempting to. I drove out demons. I performed miracles. And Jesus said in the last verse, I, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So when the key here is understanding the last verse, the, the, the issue in heaven is not whether you know about Jesus. Everybody listening to this program knows about Jesus. Everybody who sits in a church on a Wednesday or a Friday night here or a Sunday, everybody who will be in church on Good Friday and Easter, virtually this year, sadly. But everybody knows about Jesus. And you ask people today, are you a Christian? Well, I'm trying to be. And Jesus would say, well, I don't know you. Either are or you aren't. 
There's no trying to be. There's no interim. You know, there's no probationary period when you give your heart to Jesus. You're a believer. You belong to him. And you can say all you want. I know Jesus. But if you're not doing what he says, Jesus indicates he will say, away from me, you evildoer. Now, William, I don't know if this is your issue with this or not, but this isn't a statement for the man or the woman who occasionally messes up. You know, uh, somebody who struggles with temptation, this isn't a, a command to be perfect in the sense that if you mess it uh, up one time, you're lost. It's not that at all. This is describing people whose lifestyle opposes Jesus. doesn't matter what they say with their mouth. It's their lifestyle. If the lifestyle opposes Jesus, then Jesus will say, you know, I never knew you. Wish I did, but I never knew you. And of course, we know that Jesus knows everything, so since that's the case, this isn't one of those things where um, Jesus was stumped. What he means is, I never knew you in a relational way. So William, thank you for that question. Here's a question that actually irritates me a little bit, even to ask it. It's from Donovan. And he wants to know, are you a flat earther? Um, Donovan, the answer to the question is no. Um, a flat earth nonsense. And that's all it is. The, the internet is spreading so much nonsense. And believe me, these flat earthers, they're into conspiracy theories and things like this. And I've told you before in this program, when asked about conspiracy theories, they're demonic. They have a demonic pull, a demonic magnetism. And I've known many, many, many people who've gotten pulled away in these things because they're spending time on the internet instead of spending time in the Word of God. And the idea, these flat earthers have is that the Bible teaches that the earth is flat rather than round. That is not true. But like every other heresy, they've got to stretch and take out of context any passages of Scripture that they believe teach it. And it's uh, moronic. It's absolutely moronic. In this day and age of science, now, uh, um, you know, I'm hard on scientists a lot on this program on this program. But we've seen Earth from outer space. You have to deny that there are Hubble telescopes. We have to deny that we've sent astronauts into space. And of course, that's where there's a conspiracy. We've never really been out there. That's just pictures. It's production. Um, but Donovan, this is the thing I really want to... And again, I don't know... You, you don't indicate whether you're a flat Earther or not. But, but if you're even involved in conversations with people about this, this is the kind of things that makes Christians look moronic. There's absolutely no value in these things. And yet we like to chase these rabbit trails. And I'm telling you, as I said a moment ago, the enemy... The enemy has um, a, a hold on the people that are searching out these things and um, he's going to use it to destroy. It compromises our witness. It makes us look like a bunch of idiots. And so please, Donovan, 
If you are digging in and looking at these things, stop it. If you're being recruited by somebody who is, don't fall for the trap. It's a silly, silly, unnecessary, terribly poor testimony for Christians. Um, Jason asks an interesting question. Since God's mercy is forever, why can't someone be saved after dying? Well, Jason, we had a question earlier at the top of the program about free will. Um, uh, God will never compromise our free will. Not ever. And so God has given us sort of a test run in the life that we live, the 70 or so average years that people live. And in those 70 or so years, we've got to decide if we're going to serve God or if we're going to serve ourselves. And God honors the choice that we make while we're alive in this world. He honors that choice in eternity. And we've got to stick with the consequences. What, you know, we're, we're, uh, it's a lot easier for us than it is for the angels. The angels had a one-time-only choice. Lucifer, who became Satan... He deceived the angels in heaven, a third of them. And they rebelled against God. And that was the choice they're stuck with forever. They can't undo it. They can't repent too much is given, much is required. And they were in the presence of God. They saw him. They were with him. So unlike angels, we have, every day that we have breath, provides an opportunity for us to become Jesus's. And all we have to do is say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. You're in charge now. Give me new life. And he'll do it. But we've got to do that while we have conscious free will here. You know, after we die and we're in the place of torment, Luke chapter 16 says, get me out of here. Send Send Lazarus over to cool my tongue. I'm, I'm dying in this fire over here. Um, everybody would want to be saved when they're in hell. And Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed in a man once to die and then to face the judgment. So that is why we can't be saved after dying. This life is a dress rehearsal for eternity. And the choice you make in this life matters. When we die separated from Christ, Jason, we got to remember it breaks God's heart. It absolutely breaks his heart. You know, as a kid, we'd say, over my dead body. Well, literally, to go to hell, we have to step over Jesus' dead body. But no second chance after we die. And you're right, God's mercy is forever. But once we leave this body, once we leave this world... Um, it's too late for mercy. It's too late for grace. Norma asks, will carnal Christians be raptured and is a carnal Christian saved? Norma, every Christian, every true born-again believer, carnal or otherwise, will be raptured when Jesus calls his church out, those whose sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus. Um, we're going to be out of here and every single Christian will be taken away. Our problem is that we think everybody who names the name of Christ is a real Christian. 
and they live these ungodly lives. And the truth of the matter is they're not really saved at all. But yeah, every Christian, even carnal Christians, will be raptured. Uh, the evidence for that, Norm, is, is in Paul's letter to uh, the Corinthians, the first letter to the church in Corinth. Because over and over, I mean, this is a letter that is um, um, a rebuke. He is correcting them. He sounds harsh at times. Um, but he's, he's highlighting their carnality. Now, he hopes for better for them, and his heart breaks, we know from Second Corinthians, that he had to write them and be so direct. But they're carnal Christians, but he calls them brethren. Were some of those carnal Christians really not saved at all? I'm sure that's the case. It's been that way in every church through every generation in 2,000 years. But he's writing to people who he loves. Remember, Paul spent more than a year and a half in Corinth. He knew these people well, and he loved them, and his heart broke for them. That's one of the reasons he was so direct. He called them out on their carnality. But when I encounter a carnal Christian, I don't assume they're saved. In fact, I assume they're not. So I hope that answers your question, Herman. Yes, every real born-again Christian will be raptured when Jesus comes. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585. This is the Word of Standing for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. Our phones have been quiet, and I always tell you, you guys are way more interesting than me. 340-9585. Here is a challenge from Iris. She says, I know atheists who are nicer people than Christians. Why would God allow a wicked Christian in heaven but turn away a nice atheist? Iris, the, the reason is because the Christian, whether they're, I'm talking about real believers now, not just people who say they're Christian, but real believers, their sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus. Past, present, and future sins. And so when they stand before God, they will be judged on the basis of Jesus' life. And, of course, we know it was perfect keeping the law in all points. And the atheist who's a nice man or a nice woman, well, they're still going to have to give account of their sins before the Lord. I want you to think about that for a moment. Everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to have to stand before God and give account of their own life. Now imagine getting to heaven and you're the nicest person in the world, Iris. 
Imagine getting to heaven and seeing a sign there that said, only the perfect can enter. And Jesus saying, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Jesus saying to them, okay, well, let's see. Open the books. Are you perfect at all? And let's be ridiculous. Maybe there was only one sin that was ever committed by this person. That sin separates them from God. That one sin. The wicked Christian, the, the Christian who is a hypocrite, or the Christian who, who uh, doesn't care about or care for others, um, the Christian is going to open the book and all of his sins are going to be covered by the blood stains of Jesus. Crystal Lewis used to sing a beautiful song about the blood-stained pages. What a great, great picture that is. Another thing, Iris, is I don't think anybody ever said that there aren't nice, even moral atheists or unbelievers. Some people are just nicer than others. I'm not a really nice guy. Paula, on the other hand, is super, super nice. But you see, that's not the standard for entrance into heaven. It's perfection. Now let's talk about the wicked Christian who goes into heaven, somebody who really is a believer, but decided that they were going to please themselves instead of pleasing God. They were going to live in a way that that is contrary to what God wanted for them. Believe me, that man, that woman, is going to stand before God and give account on the judgment of works, and they're going to lose all their rewards. So they don't just get in. It's not like heaven is the goal. Being with Jesus is the goal. And the way we live in this life is going to determine our ability to enjoy the fullness that God has for us in eternity. So, Iris, you've written before, and and the, the one other question that I remember was also challenging like this. So let me ask you to do this. Just look at your own heart. What are you going to do when you stand before God and He says, only the perfect can enter. Now, I'm not supposing that any Christian is perfect, but positionally, we are because He who knew no sin was made to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So stop trying to figure these things out. It's simple. Jesus died for your sins. Either you'll say, yes, thank you, Lord, and now my life belongs to you. Or you continue to send in challenging questions like this from time to time. And all the while, what what I'm seeing here, Iris, is the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your heart continually, saying, come on, this is the next step. This is the next step. Here's a question from Mark. Pastor Ron, what do you think about a pastor who hasn't gone to seminary? Mark, a seminary, I realize this is the way we do it in, in the United States, but, but, but seminary is really a pretty recent invention of, of man. Um, you know, uh, from the early church, um, people became pastors um, by calling, the calling of God, but they would sit under the tutelage of, of more mature men in Christ. 
Timothy sat under Paul's ministry. Um, same is true about Titus. Um, so so that they, they would learn. They would sit at his feet and they would learn. They would watch. And so now we've decided that people have to go to seminary. And let me tell you, I've got a lot of really good friends who are pastoring really large, really effective churches who've never, ever been to seminary or even Bible college. God gave them insight into the Word. He gave them a gift to be able to communicate that insight. God can trust them with His people. And seminary, in and of itself, Mark doesn't really do any of those things. You know, I think we we get such a focus, I think, on training in this world. You know, doctor, of course, has to go learn about the human body. He's got to learn about the biology and the physiology. He's got to learn whatever the specialty is going to be. Well, as believers, especially those of us who are called to be pastors, um, we've got to learn about our specialty. And the way we do that is in the Word. Our specialty is Jesus. And so we learn about Him. The way we do that is in the Word. Now, Mark, I went to Bible college. I didn't go to a seminary, but I went to Bible college. And honestly, in Bible college, I didn't have to study nearly as much as I was studying before I even went to Bible college. God had a reason for me to be in Bible college, and a lot of it had to do with uh, humbling me. Um, not unlike a lot of you in the audience, we need to be humbled. We think too highly of ourselves. And that was the case with me. Um, but I, it, you know, if... if uh, I'd already kind of dealt with those issues. I would have had no problem coming and starting the work that we started. It just God's plan for me was a little bit different. But um, I, I'm just, I see the fruit, or the, the let me be more direct, the, the bad fruit that often comes from seminary graduates. Uh, there's a lot of good ones too. But a whole bunch of people, they, they don't come out with them deeper love for Christ. They don't come out with a deeper love for God's people. They may come out with knowledge, but knowledge, Paul says, puffs up. Love builds up. And so if the pastor you're talking about is serious about studying the Word, if that pastor is serious about Rightly dividing it. Then God will send him and use him. If the pastor you're talking about, Mark, is a pastor that love oozes from, well, then he's equipped to do the work that God has called him to do. So I'm not a big fan of seminaries. I am not opposed to education. Um, but I, I've seen a lot of bad fruit come out of seminaries, and I wouldn't want those people as my pastor. Blanca asked the question. I haven't had a question on this for a long time. Can I have your thoughts on Jesus Calling by Sarah Young? Um, Blanca, it is um, a, a book I have deep, deep, deep problems with. Uh, this is a woman. Now, it's it's a hugely popular book among women. Huge. 
Um, but this is not a book that is godly. It's not a book that's healthy for Christians. This is a woman who's written a book because she was dissatisfied with the relationship with Jesus through his word. And she claims that God told her through these callings, these visions that she gets, to share them with others so that they can have a deeper more passionate and intimate relationship with Jesus than they would ever get just in the Word. And what she's really doing, Blanca, is she's putting her own visions on a equal or even greater base than the Word of God. And that's just wrong on so many accounts. Jesus isn't a goosebump Jesus. Now, there are times you'll get goosebumps. But if you think, Blanca, that you can have a more intimate relationship with God through her book than you can through his book, then you're missing the point altogether. This is a very dangerous, almost new-agey kind of relationship that isn't genuine at all. So I would counsel you to avoid it at all costs. That sounds good, and most women read it and don't think anything of it, but you've got to really dig in and ask yourself, what's wrong with this? Is it really true that I could read this book and have a more intimate experience with the real God than the one who wrote this love letter to us in our Bible. Really, really dangerous book, Blanca. So you asked, I answered. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR for your calls. Um, Marissa wants to know, does God really hate sinners? Um, Marissa, God hates what sin does to people. God hates the consequences of sin and that sin separates us from God in many, perhaps even most cases for eternity. He hates all that. But we've got to take these passages in context along with the others that say God loves everybody. God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So God is love. So God can't hate anyone. But in, in Jewish literature, there's always sort of a, um, a, a parallelism. Um, hate often expresses that I'm not able to love them the way I want to love them. And, of course, sin makes it impossible for God to love us the way he really wants us to be loved. So he loves sinners. I hate this phrase, Marissa, but maybe it'll help you. He loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And he hates sin because it separates us from God. And what God wants is the fullness. God loved Jacob. He hated Esau, we're told. But why did he hate Esau? And the idea is not hate the way we understand hate. It's just God saying, I wanted to love you, but you wouldn't let me love you. 
Esau, you sold your birthright. You sold your birthright for a bowl of stew. And all we have to do, Marissa, is come to God, receive his love, and then we find out that hate really is an issue with God. He does hate what sin does. But God loves everybody, Marissa. And it, it's obvious that he wouldn't even be hurt if he really hated people. Then he'd want them to go to hell. But he loves them. And he wants to spend forever with them. Here is a question from Philip. He says, James 3.1 says, Teachers will be judged more harshly. I thought everyone would be judged the same. Um, Philip, again, context is important. Jesus is is telling us through his half-brother James that not many of you should seek to be teachers. In other words, there's a great responsibility, a great accountability that comes along with teaching the Word of God. So James is simply saying, if you're going to step into the role of a teacher then you need to understand that you're going to be judged harshly because you're either representing or misrepresenting God. Now, Philip, the idea here is that we're held accountable for what we teach. It's not okay to live one way and teach something else. You know, I know some friends over the years who have fallen away from the Lord and commit terrible sins. In many cases... That started while they were still teaching the Bible. Imagine what it would have been like, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, every time they were teaching a passage. I mean, if they were committing adultery, every time they would teach a passage about holiness or about sexual immorality, they'd have to teach it through the conviction. They'd have to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It would have ripped them apart. And that's often, James, why you will see teachers pastors who fall into sin and and great is their fall. I mean, the public is aware of it and um, their reputations are destroyed, their families are destroyed. They are super, super accountable. I just taught um, um, Philip, 1 Peter uh, last Friday night, 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, I think I did just the first four verses. It's really about this um, it's it's what a pastor is accountable for. Uh, you can go to our website calvaryessay.com and um, and all of our stuff is free there. You can listen to last Friday night's teaching, and you'll get an idea, I think, about what that says. We've got a call from Louisiana on line one. Pauline, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Oh, don't you tell me that. Is, is don't, this don't tell you. Church in San Antonio with Pastor Warren? No, this is not. This is Calvary <laughs> Chapel of San Antonio. I'm Pastor Ron. Oh, I'm sorry. I got the wrong church. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. You have a blessed Thank week. You too, Pauline. God bless you. Thank you. Well, that was different, wasn't it? <laughs> 340 Honestly, this is our eighth year. That's never happened where somebody got the wrong number. Here's a question from Barry. Pauline, we love you. I don't, Barry says, um, Paul says we're not appointed to wrath, but if we will be in the Great Tribulation, we'll be appointed to wrath. That's a contradiction. Well, Barry, 
Um, that's the whole thing. There's no contradiction because we will not be in the Great Tribulation. I don't know who you're listening to or who you're reading that says Christians are going to go through the Great Tribulation. Um, this is, again, Paul's letters to the churches in Thessalonica. And uh, we will not be in the Great Tribulation. And it is certain that the Great Tribulation is the wrath of God being poured out. So your logic is spot on. You're just reading, I think, the wrong people. Um, Christians will be raptured before the Great Tribulation begins. Pre-trib eschatology uh, demands that we're not here. Um, clearly our sins have been punished the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus that's why penal substitutionary atonement is such an important doctrine Jesus um, paid the price, he took the pain the, the punishment that provided us peace with God and so we will not be here um, unbelievers will be cast into the great tribulation we won't so you can take a deep breath, Barry. We're going to be fine. Um, we are not appointed under wrath, but we are appointed for salvation. We will be rescued from the Great Tribulation. You know, I had somebody not too long ago say, well, you're just trying to escape the, the, the reality of Christians having tribulation in this world. And I said, well, two things. One, Jesus did say in this world you will have tribulation. But he didn't say we'll have the Great Tribulation. Completely different thing. The other thing is Jesus is the one who told us to pray that we'd be counted worthy to escape such things. And the context there was the judgment of the Great Tribulation. So how do you be counted worthy to escape the wrath of God? You simply come to Jesus Christ, surrender your heart, invite Jesus to take over your life, and your sins are as far from you as east is from west. So, Barry, no problem. Diana says, is it possible to be a racist and a Christian? Diana, it's really possible to start out that way. But believe me, it's not possible to stay that way. A Christian who is a racist is identifying himself or herself as an unbeliever. If God so loved the world, isn't it true that God's children should so love his other children? And we can look through the Bible and, and understand that God sees no differences. The only difference God sees between people are saved and unsaved. No Greek nor Jew, no slave nor free, no male nor female. I would say no black, no white, no brown, no white. So it's possible to start out that way. We're all products of our environment. But when the love of God, when the Holy Spirit of God comes flooding into your heart, Diana, well, then there's no way that you can be prejudiced or racist. There is no room for prejudice in the life of a true Christian, no matter what, no matter where. Let's go to, we got uh, inside five minutes. Let's go to Daniel uh, on line one from San Antonio. Daniel, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I just wanted to ask you a question just because I hadn't been able to see you to ask him in person. So mm -hmm. uh, I just want to ask you, I was reading Ephesians uh, 3.12 the other, I was actually reading, the, I was going through the chapters, and I was reading in 3.12, it says about us, 
you know, uh, because of what Christ and our faith in Him, that we can come boldly and confidently into God's presence. And as I was reading that, I, I was reminded of the story of in Job where it says that there was a, a meeting in the heavenly courts where the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord and that Satan was there with them. Or in the, I think the translation says the, the accuser, Satan. And I, 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 yeah, the thought came to my head that, you know, if he can... If he goes into God's presence, you know, and I thought, like, you know, with with confidence, you know, to speak to the Lord, I thought, you know, uh, I thought to myself, as a Christian, you know, who we've been made right with God through uh, Jesus, through the work that Jesus has done, like, I thought to myself, like, how much more confidence should I have when I go to him in prayer? Because I have, I'm, you know, he loves me just as much as he loves his son, you know. But I didn't know. I thought maybe I was overthinking it, but I wanted to ask you. Yeah, Daniel, it's it's really good to hear from you. I hope you guys are doing well, and I hope everything is safe. We we love you and we miss you both very very much. Um, you read my mind. Um, you know, this is one of those, again, another Hebrewism. How much more is if Satan can approach God? And I, I'll never understand why Satan has access to the throne of God. But for some reason that serves God's purpose, he does. If Satan can go and appear before the throne of God, how much more those of us who have been washed by the blood of Jesus, those of us who are the beloved of God, the adopted of God. And so you're not overthinking at all. This is one of those passages of Scripture that is as brief as it is. Uh, it, it ought to encourage us to come before God every single day. Uh, Hebrews also says that we can approach the throne of grace with, the King James says, boldness. I don't like that translation as much as with confidence. Because it, it's like we always have a standing appointment. And so the idea here is we, we ought to be banging on that door of the throne of God every single day, confident that our prayers are going to be heard. And in the verse that you, you asked about, it says not only with confidence, but we can approach Him with freedom. With freedom. We're unencumbered by sin. We're unencumbered by the power of sin. We're no longer um, um, in danger of the consequence of sin. So all we have to do is come to Him every day. Every single day. Sometimes it may seem like we're praying the same things. It doesn't matter. God is listening. He wants us to be there. And all we have to do is let Him know that we're grateful for the opportunity. Daniel, thank you. It's good to hear your voice. Please give Rosario our love very, very much. Well, we're almost at the end of this. Well, there's the music. We're at the end of the program today. Thanks for tuning in. Our phones were quiet. Um, but uh, Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word at 4 o'clock for The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Be safe. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He's got you. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 
And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh, yeah.